You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are extremely grateful for the opportunity to talk to Professor Doug McLeod, Professor of Journalism and Mass Communications here at UW, about advertising and consumerism in the context of the pandemic, and more broadly, the state of American politics and democracy today. There's so much to talk about, so let's jump right in. Thanks so much for being with us today, Professor McLeod. Of course, my pleasure. Well, we're so happy to have you because... As we all know, we're almost a year into a global pandemic that has wreaked havoc on every aspect of our lives. And the last three months of American politics have really upended this nation's sense of security and especially just kind of the sanctity of how we imagine our democracy in the United States. And so we really want to kind of get into it with you and your expertise in political communication and advertising and consumerism and pick your brain on to just kind of where we are in this precarious moment in American politics and culture. So I just want to start off with a really, really broad question. Can advertising ever be good for democracy? Yeah, that's a good question, Sam. And there's no easy answer to it. But the first thing I want to say is when we talk about advertising and its political impact on democracy. We have to divide uh, advertising at very least into political advertising and consumer advertising. And my sense is you're probably more interested in the consumer advertising side of things, but obviously, you know, we can dispense with political advertising pretty quick. It's a mixed blessing. Um, It tends to build awareness and interest in campaigns. It tends to build voter response and other kinds of things by getting people engaged, but it's really not a great source of campaign information. There's not a lot to be learned uh, from that kind of information. And it also puts a premium on um, having a lot of money to be a viable candidate. Uh, You either need to be independently wealthy or have the ability to generate huge amounts of campaign funds. And the amount of money that gets generated on advertising campaigns could be seen as as being something obscene. Um, So, Again, I think it's sort of a mixed blessing for democracy. It, it stimulates it in a way and perverts it in other ways. Um, but let's talk about um, commercial advertising where I think the answers are much less obvious and a little more variegated. Again, I think when it comes to commercial advertising, there are positives. Uh, and negatives of advertising. So there are no simple answers. I think most of the positives uh, in terms of advertising's impact on democracy are fairly uh, obvious. Uh, advertising tends to stimulate economic activity and, and growth and helps you know people get interested in making purchase decisions and uh, that provides jobs and the products we buy to some extent meet people's needs. It you know, 
provides incentives for people to innovate because they invest, they make a new product or innovate in an important way. They know they can use advertising to get the word out to the public so they can recruit their lot. So there's these kind of economic impacts and that translates into democracy, I think, by keeping people happy and engaged. Um, if there's a lot of unhappiness and incivility in society, you know, that's not necessarily good for democracy as we've kind of seen recently. Um, so I guess those are some of the positive arguments. Um, I don't know how strong or how direct they are. While when it comes to the negatives, I think that's a larger um, conversation with many more subtleties and nooks and crannies to it. Um, so I would say that some of the negative impacts of advertising on democracy begin with consumption um, and ultimately overconsumption. America is a high consumption society, as high as if, uh, if not the highest levels of consumption uh, of, of large nations around the globe. Americans are obsessed with consumption. Uh, and consumption up to a point is good, right? We need to have our basic needs met. We have to be able to eat. We need shelter. We need clothing. There's a lot of things we need. There are conveniences that make our lives better and things like cell phones help us to communicate. And certainly things like cell phones help us to connect politically in a democracy and link up to like-minded people or link up to information that may support our positions or oppose our positions. So advertising can stimulate consumptions of products like cell phones and connectivity that can further uh, um, democracy. Um, but at the same time, consumption can go too far. And that's what we might refer to as overconsumption. Either we're spending and consuming too much as individuals and a society spending beyond our means, or we're becoming obsessed with consumptions with other kinds of, of detriments. Let's talk about a couple of those things. Sir, first, first and foremost, I think research has shown and serious research, you know, that has been rewarded with uh, prizes as high as Nobel prizes, research that has looked into what makes people happy. I mean, I can't think of more important kinds of research going on. People might scoff, what research on happiness, what's that about? I can't think of a more important thing to study is what makes people happy and how can we spread happiness throughout our society and throughout the world? You know, if we're all happy, uh, you know, that's a good sign for democracy. The problem is consumption is at times, and particularly overconsumption is a flawed path to happiness. Um, many people see consumption as, as a path to happiness. I'll be happy if I just buy one more thing or if I could afford this or if I can get a raise so I can buy a new car, buy a new house and raise my standard of living. Um, we're kind of like chasing uh, money and because it brings us consumption with this sort of understanding that that's how we're gonna be happy. And if we can just raise our consumption to this bar, then we'll be happy. But the problem is we get to that bar and then there's another bar a little bit higher that we wanna get to and we adjust our expectations to a bar that's just beyond our grasp. And if we manage to get there someday, that bar moves. And so that's a part of what makes uh, consumption a flawed path to happiness. 
Now, in terms of consumption, the research does also show that there is one kind of consumption that is a path to making people happy, and that's leisure consumption. Leisure consumption is the one form of consumption where it seems like people get a return on their investment. So when they spend money on travel or entertainment or recreational activities or sporting activities, the arts, music, and other kinds of things, it seems like there's a greater return on our investment in terms of the happiness that it brings. But most of the other time, we're on this kind of what, what has been referred to as a hedonistic treadmill, where we're chasing, chasing, chasing the next thing. And as soon as we have it, there's another thing that we're chasing. Uh, if only I can afford this, I'll be happy. And I, I can give an example of myself. You know, I, I collect guitars and basses. And I always think this is the last bass I am ever going to buy. And then I always, there's one, oh, I need a fretless or I need the ukulele bass. There's always one more bass and it's going to be my last one. But I'm like a rat on the treadmill and I never quite get enough. So that's one problem. Another problem is mood management. We try to regulate our moods to uh, use consumption to make us happier. So we buy things because we get a little bit of a thrill. Um, when, when, when we purchase something new or we look forward to going shopping and buying something as a way of picking up our mood. But the problem is, is that kind of mood management is very short-lived. And sometimes it leads us to buy stuff for the sake of buying it that we don't really need. And then we need to find something else because we didn't get the high off the buy from the product that we were originally buying. We wanted to um, try to find something else um, to make us happy. And so uh, 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 um, John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, a well-known and influential academic uh, who was an advisor to Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, part of the War on Poverty and other things, John Kenneth Galbraith made an analogy between consumption, overconsumption, and drug addiction, that there are a lot of similarities where we kind of get into this cycle. Uh, where we are looking for our next fix and we buy something. And that had other parallels too, like drugs put you on initial high and then there's a crash. And then you need something, another hit to get high again. And then over time, you build up tolerance for the drug to the point where the hits that would get you high one day no longer work. And so we start to accelerate our toys. I mean, that's something... As you, you know, you learn as a kid, you have cheap toys, you're excited by, you know, a pack of gum when you're six years old. By the time you get to 22, those toys are much more expensive. By the time you get to 30 and 40, like now you're starting to look at, I need that sports car. You know, our, so, so the drugs that we buy have to be like larger and larger doses. And there's some other parallels. I think when it comes to uh, 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 addiction, uh, when it comes to drugs, there is actually people who are compulsive consumers and addicted to consumption. And that's certainly not healthy. And so things that make us not healthy or not realizing, maximizing our own potential, feeling self-actualized, things that kind of drag us down like that is not a healthy thing to be having in society when it's widespread. Right, And we're all kind of on this treadmill, some of us more than others, but it's, it's like we're all using drugs. 
right, to some extent, some more than others. And that's probably not healthy. But let me just talk a couple other pitfalls that really sink democracy in a more direct way. Consumer debt. The average household debt in 2020 that was put on revolving credit cards. So this is you're paying for stuff with credit cards because you can't afford it, right, afford it right now. But the credit card lets you buy stuff that you don't have the money for, which is dangerous to begin with. But what happens is people get a balance on their credit card and then they don't pay it off every month. It's called a revolving balance, right? And so their average balance and, and, and the average household has a balance of $6,271 that they carry all the time on their credit card. What that means is people are paying like over $1,200 a year for nothing. The interest that that revolving balance generates has to be paid off. And so, you know, that's not healthy. And, you know, people have auto loans because they want to buy a car and, you know, a used car isn't good enough. They want a new car. So the average household carry, the average person carries $17,000 in auto loans. And of course we have college debts and other kinds of things. Well, not only is being in debt terrible for our psyche and our happiness, um, but it also can kind of lead to economic consequences that ultimately end up reverter, reverberating on the system level uh, to, to create uh, um, problems for society as a whole. So for example, um, in 2008, 2009, there was a mortgage crisis that was part of a, 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 the Great Recession, the largest recession since the Great Depression, where a lot of people lost jobs and a lot of, uh, pro, a, a, a lot of economic downturn that took a decade to dig ourselves out of. So in terms of that um, uh, mortgage crisis, one of the things that was a, a direct cause of it was bad home loans. And that's why they call it the mortgage crisis. A lot of banks were issuing variable loans that had lower interest rates that would allow people to buy bigger houses. Why did they need bigger houses? Because every year we're getting more stuff. And every generation, the stuff that we have, the necessities that we need to be happy is expanding. So we have more stuff, so we need bigger houses. And everybody thinks big house is the key to happiness. What happens? We take risky loans. We can't pay back those loans and it crashes. And a recession with massive unemployment and uh, 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 poverty, that's not good for democracy and it sows a certain amount of discord. So I know that's a long-winded answer. I think there's a lot more to say, um, but bottom line is advertising has some ramifications at the individual level that complicate our lives. When you aggregate that to the social level, it creates more problems for democracy. High levels of consumption lead to a waste of resources. Uh, it leads to pollution from overproduction and distribution of all these products. And the use and disposal of these products creates pollution and ultimately contributes to things like global warming. So physical manifestations that place challenges to democracy and lastly, it can corrupt our values. And this is where it really connects up, I think, to democracy, is that our values that are driven by advertising that make us obsessed with consumption, put a premium on individual ownership. We all as a society want our own 
home gyms, our own swimming pools, our home movie theaters. We want to own it all ourselves. And it's all about me. And it makes us, we're already considered an individualistic rather than a collective culture compared to some other cultures. It accentuates that individualism that distorts our priorities about what's important, right, as a society. And so given our wealth, we do a dang poor job of taking care of people in need. And that creates political strife and partisan divides. What you what you last discussed, um, it's really interesting to think about happiness and like studying happiness as like a fundamental like political problem that like we should be solving and that we should take seriously. We also wanted to kind of pick your brain up if you think that advertising can be an indicator of the health of democracy or the health of a state, in this case, obviously the United States. Again, it's a question that has mixed elements for and against. There's no easy answers. I mean, the question of, is it an indicator of the success of a democracy? Part, you might say it's a good indicator in the sense that it's an indicator of the health of the economy. And presumably if the economy is doing well, again, we're making some assumptions here, but if the economy is doing well, generally speaking, democracy is gonna be healthier as long as you don't have too much inequality where that kind of wealth accumulation has problems, as long as everybody's benefiting from a healthy economy with jobs and money, um, it could be seen as an indicator. But in terms of the short-term relationship between advertising and economic democratic health, it's generally speaking, not something that produces economic growth by stimulating consumption the research shows it's actually kind of the flip side where economies start getting better, advertising expenditures later go up when economies tank, shortly thereafter, advertising expenditures go down. So it's not so much driving economic health as it is responding to economic health. So uh, it's a delayed indicator that uh, of what's happening with the economy. That said, there are some um, long-term um, consequences, uh, again, of advertising uh, when it comes to um, uh, uh, st stimulating overconsumption again um, and changing our values. So advertising, you have to look at the content of advertising and what's being promoted, right? Uh, some advertising informs some advertising inspires, some advertising entertains. Those are probably good things. Some advertising, on the other hand, at, uh, at its worst, some advertising uh, distorts our priorities, right? As I was saying sort of before, um, we become more interested in our toys than on the policies and procedures that affect our lives in terms of politics. So ah, politics isn't for me. I don't care who's elected president. I don't care about voting. What I care about is being able to, you know, drive my wave runner on the lake in the summer. So it sometimes might serve as a diversion away from serious, important matters related to democracy. And if, you know, there's, if you start looking at the nature of advertising and you find out that it's more swinging towards the problematic sides of distraction, of shifting values in a way that's not democratic, 
um, then it might be a, a, an indicator that sort of democracy is, democracy is failing. We need more of the drug, right? And the consumption to make us forget about the problems rather than confront the problems in our daily lives. Uh, I kind of want to ask the, the flip side of that question. We've been kind of talking about advertisers and producers, but I'm kind of interested in asking about the consumers as well during the pandemic. So what can we make of the evolution of consumerism and consumerist trends throughout the pandemic? As we've, we've seen a couple of quite interesting ones related to the outbreak, like during the beginning, we saw people rush to stores to hoard toilet paper and hand sanitizer. Since then, we've been seeing uh, people invest in things like streaming and home entertainment and other things like that. What if we're looking at this from the consumer side, can we learn about America, American society or American democracy? Yeah, so, so that's a really good question. And again, I'll use the, the reaction point being overconsumption. Overconsumption is bad for democracy. It's bad for individuals. It's, bad, you know, it, it's something that we, we, we need to pay attention to. And so what happens when the COVID-19 comes along? How is it going to affect consumer behavior, consumer attitudes? Um, how is it going to affect things like uh, uh, overconsumption? Historical events can have huge impacts on attitudes towards consumption. The biggest um, in the last century, just barely in the last century, was the Great Depression. The Great Depression had high levels of unemployment. Consumption levels were way down, right, during the Great Depression. It fundamentally changed people's outlooks and their lifestyles. And you can see that, and they're getting pretty old now, but people who live through the Great Depression are much more conservative when it comes to saving, much uh, more hesitant to spend freely. Um, <laughs> I'll give you a personal example. My sister and I were laughing about today. Uh, my dad's retired. You know, he, he lives on a nice, healthy pension. He would give anything money to support his family members, me or my, his grandkids, my kids, you know, uh, because he has the money to do so. But he needs a new stove. And he doesn't want to buy a new stove. Well, like, you know, two burners out of four on my stove is good enough. And that's because he lived through, he was, he was pretty young, but he grew up in that depression household um, that learned from the depression, the importance of restraining yourself when it comes to consumption and not overspending above and beyond your means. So we have the depression. So in some ways, COVID could be seen as being somewhat like the Great Depression in the sense that we've had high levels of unemployment. Many people are worried about where their next meal is coming from. Some of the conditions, uh, in some ways, uh, stock market be damned, um, mirror what's happening in the Great Depression, causing people to sort of rethink some of their consumption patterns. Maybe I should save more and not spend every penny I get to prepare for these kind of rainy day situations. And so there is some evidence that consumption is down. Um, people are spending less um, in part because it's harder to spend stuff because you don't wanna go to the store, you don't wanna go to the mall. Um, driving is down, uh, reducing traffic uh, congestion, air pollution, 
um, our carbon footprint. <laughs> There's apparently signs that, you know, we're using a lot less fossil fuels and uh, some of the indicators are showing the impact of COVID-19 and those kinds of things. Um, we spend more times with our family now, um, for better or worse, we're home all day, uh, interacting with our family. Um, and so, we're, and for sure, we're developing an appreciation for some of the simple leisure activities that we have to do about just sitting in a coffee shop, which doesn't usually involve a lot of consumption, you know, $5 cup of coffee, you know, restaurants, movie theaters, live music, all those things we miss, miss so much, we kind of took for granted. So one of the positive is as consumers, we would develop a new appreciation for that. On the other hand, there's plenty of negatives as well. Uh, again, both in terms of individuals uh, and in terms of society. I mean, there's definitely a lack of consumer confidence. Uh, people are worried. Um, there's worry that the economy is going to crash. So far, it hasn't happened, but we got a steady dose this past summer of we need to start everything back up again to avoid a stock market crash. We need to get the economies moving again. We need to get schools open again. There was kind of this rush and panic, right, to try to get things open before it was safe because of fears that the economy was going to crash even worse than it is. Uh, and, and of course, that may lead to some um, problems. Again, structurally, there's also, it's really affected inequality, right? Inequality, both in terms of health, where low-income people uh, and elderly people on fixed incomes are disproportionately being hurt by COVID-19. Uh, you know, upper middle class people, younger, healthier, have been less hurt when a health, from a health standpoint. But there's a parallel economically in what we talked about before in terms of the K recovery, the K-shaped recovery, where certain people are doing really well and certain people aren't doing very poorly. And that's correlated with socioeconomic status. It's correlated with uh, um, minority races and other kinds of things um, that further the inequality. And inequality is not good for democracy and political stability. You can only to tolerate so much and for so long before disruptions start to happen. So we've seen disruptions. And again, for better or worse, a lot of protests this past summer seeking social change. And so some of that disruption was an impetus to get people to try to bring about positive change. Great to the extent that they do it, bad if the means that they use are destructive and turn the system against them um, and making it difficult to get that change. But we've seen some of the same kinds of frustrations in the takeover of the capital, right? So I feel like some of these kinds of disruptions are a function of anger that's being generated um, by inequality, even if some of the participants don't really understand why. I mean, some of the people are uh, uh, in the capital riots were motivated by a fear of loss of white dominance and white power. And they've been fed a line that um, these immigrants, these minorities are gonna come take your jobs that's kind of been used against them to sort of misdirect the, them away from a class and economic interpretation for their circumstances to make it more about race and other kinds of things um, to kind of distract them. So, so that's problematic. But even on a more personal level, when it comes to consumption, 
Um, I think there's a certain sadness by some of the threats to social activities. We've lost a lot of our social fabric and integration as a result of COVID. I mean, one of the things that leads to happiness and satisfaction with a system, right, is feeling like you have good, stable, strong relationships with friends and family and other kinds of things. Well, COVID has threatened um, some of our activities that we like to do together, to go to sporting events, movies, concerts, to travel. Some of those things that the research shows keeps us happy. It also threatens some of the rituals that we have to kind of structure our lives. Weddings have become comp uh, complicated or postponed. Anniversaries, funerals, holiday gatherings uh, become threatened. And then one that's close to my heart, graduations. I have four sons. All of them were set to graduate last spring from different levels of school, uh, grade school, high school, college, graduate school, all four graduations kind of disappeared in the thin air. And then I watch all my students from last year and I'm hopefully, hopefully it's not gonna happen again this year, but all of them being so excited to graduate and move on with their life, this life-changing ritual of graduation and you know, the university does its best to maintain it, but it's like somebody stuck a pin and it just all kind of deflates. And I, I'm just sad for that. So these kinds of rituals and things are bonding. It, human beings bonding with other human beings that form the fabric of society, the integration of society. And when those things start suffering, that's not good for democracy either. Um, one last thing I want to talk about to get back to your question about um, consumers and how it's impact consumers, because I want to contradict something that I started that answer with. So for sure, most people have cut back on their consumption and are rethinking some of that overconsumption. But I think it may be finding a new and perhaps very dangerous form. It's like the new drug on the market that is... Uh, uh, um, you know, like a new form of opiate that's twice as powerful and 10 times as addictive, maybe. And that's online shopping. So here I sit, where I've been sitting for almost a year now, in my office, where I sit almost every day in front of my com computer screen, talking to students and colleagues and other things and doing business online, that's all great. But I also have a perfect view out my window of when the FedEx person, delivery person comes, or the UPS person, or the USPS person comes. And I see so many trucks driving up and down the street that you'd never see before. Amazon trucks, FedEx trucks, all day long driving up and down the street. And I'm worried about this kind of consumption, right? Because it's very low effort. I don't have to get in my car and go to the store and walk around the mall and, and do that. And at least if I'm walking around the mall, I'm getting some exercise. I'm sitting here on my butt in my chair, right? You know, buying stuff online. But it's kind of addictive because, you know, you buy all this stuff very easily. And then the, the online tracking allows you to watch it. And it goes from, you know, uh, uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, to Indianapolis, to Chicago, to Milwaukee, to Madison. It's getting closer and closer and closer for the big, you know, high that's going to come when that guy walks up my front porch and drops the package on the door. Then I get to get up from my chair and run out and see what it is. And sometimes I'm disappointed because it's not for me, it's for somebody else in my family. 
But to me, that whole process of shopping is kind of like uh, 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 oxycodone, right? Compared to regular old heroin. It's so much more involving and addicting, right? To see that delivery person bringing it to me. Um, and so we're doing more and more and more of that. That has repercussions, right? It's killing small businesses. It's killing retail uh, uh, establishments. It's killing shopping malls for better or worse. Uh, fundamentally changing, but it's also kind of um, probably leading to a mass accumulation of wealth, right? Where Amazon is just doing super well and FedEx and, uh, 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 you know, some firms are really grabbing a huge portion of, of control of the market. Do you think that in this new administration, we're going to see you know, we started, we started to see it in 2021, the beginnings of like the next, I feel like one of the next like big antitrust movements, especially against big tech. Are Is there going to be something like that against these huge companies, you know, under this new administration? Yeah. Well, you know, Adam, you raise a really good point that that kind of policing of markets varies greatly from one administration to the next. Uh, it's correlated, obviously, with Democrats, Republicans, liberals, and conservatives, where conservatives and Republicans tend to be more laissez-faire. Um, but it also um, varies depending on, you know, the very person at the top. They're, not all Republicans are the same. Not all Democrats are the same. Um, so I would say relative to the last administration, there's probably more interest in looking at regulation and watching out for market failures like... Uh, 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 growth in, in too much power within a market, market domination. Um, I mean, at some point on the trend lines we're on, it's going to be sort of inevitable. Um, companies like Amazon are just so big and dominating retail markets. Um, it's cheap now, but if competition continues to decline, eventually the prices for consumers are going to go up people are going to get angry. I don't have a strong handle on Biden's approach to regulation yet. My sense is he's pretty middle of the road on most things, not really pushing for radical solutions um, compared to some within his party who might be quicker to act. But again, it's something we got to pay attention to as a society because you know most people kind of believe in the market system market system as a way of distributing rewards and producing the social good, but markets fail. And when markets fail, you don't produce the social good. And so you have to police markets. You can't just say laissez-faire, the markets will take care of themselves because they don't. And so politicians and we as citizens have to monitor that kind of thing to make sure that markets operate efficiently. And sometimes that means busting up big companies. We did it to phone companies. We did it to oil companies. We did it, and 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 with good outcomes. Um, phone services cheaper, and there's competition uh, because the phone service got busted up. And so, yeah, uh, it's a good question. I don't have a good answer. We'll see. And now that we're kind of moving on to talking about the transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. 
I kind of want to connect these two ideas and ask about the intersection of branding and politics, because it's undeniable that Donald Trump was a brand. I mean, the Trump name was literally a brand before he ascended into politics, and it may or may not still continue to be one for his specific style of politics. So I kind of want to ask a, a two-parted question. Um, first, do you think that Trumpism as a brand will continue now that Donald Trump is not the president and more or less, at least for the time being, out of politics? And mm -hmm. two, what are just the larger implications for policy and governing now that it seems like we are viewing political parties or certain political ideologies as brands? Yeah, well, let's take the specific question that you started with first with when it comes to Trumpism, because I think that may be a little bit easier to answer. Um, so yes, like never before, the brand was really salient. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's not something new. I mean, the Republican Party has had a brand. The platform is an important part of establishing your brand. The Democratic Party has had a brand. Brands convey meanings to people. You know, when you think of an entity like a corporation or a product, brand, it has a certain meaning and a certain power uh, that kind of comes to you in kind of a simplified way. It uh, helps you kind of understand it. And so those Democratic and Republican brands have been around a long time, but they have never been so more usurped by a single individual. You know, Obama had a brand, but the Democratic Party and Obama's brand were not synonymous with each other, and the party wasn't dominated by Obama. And we could say the same thing going back and forth from party to party. Trump came in as a brand, and that's a good label because um, brands are abstract and not always based on substance. We don't know if he was a rich, successful businessman. There's a lot of evidence to the contrary, uh, that not all of his business ventures succeeded, not all of his business ventures were real, that in a lot of cases, he wasn't building buildings, but selling his name and putting them on buildings, which is the essence you know, the, the epitome of, of, of crazy brand, right? You don't build the product, you don't make the product, somebody else doesn't. At the very end, you take money to put your brand name on the building. And so, you know, that's probably the thing, this greatest strength, right, is building a brand and understanding how to make that brand appeal to a certain subset of people. In part, fueled by anger that we talked about before and motivation that that brand made sense. Uh, in the context. And obviously, he was a populist. And from what most people say about populists, movements have a hard time, populist movements have a hard time transcending the brand, if you will, of the people that lead them. And so sometimes those kind of populist brands live and die with the individual. So it's not clear whether Trump as a politician, as a political brand has died yet? I suspect not. Uh, his mouthpiece has somewhat been taken away by tech companies. Uh, so he's not so omnipresent in people's lives, but you know, he's, uh, 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 Kennedy, you know, from the Republican party made a trip down there to kowtow to him, you know, 
uh, so there's still people in the Republican Party paying patronage to Trump, trying to live off his brand. You know, that seems like a risky strategy, and some of the people that have tried to build themselves off the Trump brand have not done so well. Um, uh, they, you know, uh, again, um, they don't have his persona, and uh, certain politicians who've tried to be the new Trump or the future Trump um, seem to have faced a lot of ridicule um, and problems. So will Trumpism uh, continue? I mean, there was talk about forming a third party. Probably that was their best hope of continuing, I think. Um, not necessarily gaining power because uh, they would split the Republican party in two. And I don't know how long that would be successful. Um, Trump is fairly old. Would he make a comeback in 2024? Who knows? Uh, would it be successful? Who knows? Um, <laughs> but he's by default a player because being a rich person like Ross Perot made him a player, whether he had ideas or not. So Trump would certainly be a player and probably the front runner if he threw his hat in the ring. That's what him. And so what will happen is really dependent on how the rest of the Republican party reacts. Do you want to put all your eggs in this basket and try to ride it out and see if you make it or do you split? I mean, this is a schizophrenic crisis for the Republican party. Um, it's really interesting. Very few people have jumped ship. Even now that he's gone, that kind of surprises me. But he's still trying to exert pressure on those people by saying, hey, we're going to primary you if you don't toe the line. I don't know how I would take to that kind of bullying. I think there are some people like Jeff Flake who've said, it's not for me. I'm not going to be bullied like that. But it doesn't seem like many people. A lot of people in the party seem to be towing the line and going along with it. It looks like the brand is going to be extended as long as Trump has one foot in the ring. I doubt seriously if he can pass it off generationally. If Ivanka Trump runs against uh, 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 Marco Rubio for Senate or something like that, we'll see. That'll be the test case, right? Whether the Trump brand is transferable, intergenerational transfer. You know, we're, we're very nearly running up on time so we want to make sure that we you know are cognizant of that um and we we like to ask our guests on the podcast this at the end of every episode but what are you hopeful about uh in this new year what are you hopeful about you know in politics and in the research that you're doing and you're on sabbatical if you're I am on uh, sabbatical. if you're hopeful about you know the <laughs> if you're doing any like development work or any work while you're on sabbatical or any writing so adam your question gave me goosebumps all over if I had hair on my head, it would be standing on end. No, I think it's really important for everyone to sort of say, hey, what are you hopeful about? I mean, to keep up that optimism, what do you want? I mean, I'm going to be, I'm on sabbatical. I'm working on a, a book project. I'm finishing one sort of major, major 150-page uh, article, which is a little large for most journal articles. And that's going to be off my plate next week. And then I'm turning my attention to writing a book um, that is going to be about protest um, which is one of the things that I study. And it's basically looking at how the American media system uh, has changed from the 20th century to the 21st century and how that change in the media system impacts the way that social movements and protests get covered. So we're doing case study comparisons of protests that occurred in the 1980s or in one case 70s 
and protests that have occurred more recently to see how that media system change affects the nature of protest coverage. Now that we have ideologically charged media organizations that we didn't have in the 80s or 90s, now that we have citizen journalists with cameras, now that social movements have their own ways of communicating to audiences that didn't happen before. So we're kind of looking at those questions through a series of paired case studies, like looking at uh, uh, the Rodney King protests uh, um, relative um, to the, um, uh, uh, not Black Lives Matter, to the uh, Ferguson protests in uh, uh, Missouri, uh, looking at uh, Forsyth County, Georgia, and the race uh, uh, protests that occurred there compared to Charlottesville. So I'm, I'm going to have a lot of fun writing that book. Uh, mainly because it's a more historical book than a database book. And it's been a while since I've dabbled, dabbled in being a historian. So we'll see. So what am I hopeful about? Um, I, you know, there's good news every day. It seems like two steps forward, one step backwards. A new vaccine from Johnson & Johnson has come out. Um, that's going to add to our arsenal. It's a one-shot vaccine. It's not quite, apparently not quite as powerful as the other vaccines but it's a really good backstop. Um, there's more optimism now about getting the uh, vaccines out farther and wider and faster. I think that's great. I mean, it's amazing to me how health science has grown in the last year. I mean, a year ago, we had no idea whether a vaccine with regard to COVID would even be possible. There were people saying this kind of virus, there's no vaccine, it's not possible. Um, and to see how fast. I think the testing uh, on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was 25 days. And they're trying to get a license spring in market. A little bit scary, uh, and we'll see. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful that also consumers will learn, that we all will learn lessons from this pandemic um, to pay closer to attention to our consumption habits and avoid the pitfalls of overconsumption. But even more important that, uh, than that is like appreciating our friends, our families and the other people that we encounter and that we don't like take for granted little experiences like hanging out at the Union Terrace and listening to music that boy, I could have done that, you know, two summers ago, I could have done that probably 30 times. I haven't been able to do that for a year. I would give anything to do it once, but you know, I'm, I'm hopeful maybe this summer um, that those kinds of things will return and that people will have a newfound appreciation for those things. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great having you. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.